qualities apart from another, and each attribute is distinct in itself. It varies, so he could be powerful in one area, weak in another, wise in one, uh, foolish in another, um, just in one area, um, and not just or unjust in the other. On the other hand, when we say God is wise, powerful, and just, God does not hold these attributes distinct from his being God. God is actually, infinitely, and eternally, and perfectly all that he is. God is the wisdom by which he is wise. He is the righteousness by which he is righteous. He is the justice by which he is just, the power by which he exerts his power. All that is God, all that is in God is God, and God is perfectly all of those things, right? He's not composed of separate parts. And so that's what we mean when we say that God is simple. We are complex. We vary. We have different uh, variations and parts of us, but God is not complex. He is simple. Now, explaining that God is simple is not that simple. I, I don't know. That might have gone over some of your heads. Uh, and so I would like to leave with this as well, that keep in mind that God is incomprehensible. Um, what we mean when we say that God is incomprehensible is that the full knowledge of God, as he is, cannot be fully contained or comprehended within our, our minds. Right? The finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite. Uh, we are plumbing the depths of an ocean that has no bottom, and we are sailing across a sea that has no shore on the other side. Uh, but just because we cannot fully comprehend does not mean that we cannot know God as he has revealed himself in his word. St. Augustine says this, If you comprehend, it is not God. Um, but even though we cannot comprehend him fully, um, again, De Young says this, that we must strive to know him truly. And I think we can truly know who he is, even though we cannot comprehend fully um, his infinity or his complete being. And so with that being said, this being a, a topical sermon, we'll be hopping around and visiting many different texts. Um, but I would like to start by reading Psalm 102, 25 through 28 as kind of a jumping off point. So if you would please stand as we read from God's holy infallible word. Psalm 102, 25 through 28. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is God's holy and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. And we ask that you'd help us now as we seek to truly know the God who is incomprehensible. We ask that you grant to us assurance and security as we look to Christ, who is the rock, who cannot be moved. We ask all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So for those of you who are note takers this evening, uh, this sermon will be outlined under three headings. Uh, first is that God is immutable in his essence. Second, God is immutable in his attributes. And third, God is immutable in his purposes. And then we'll begin to look at something called impassibility before we close. And I want to encourage you, there might be a lot of 
words that you are unfamiliar with as we speak of the attributes and, and doctrines of God, don't become discouraged. God is incomprehensible. As I work through and say some things that you may not be familiar with, I will do my very best to break them down. I'm um, so maybe known to you and clear to you. And of course, as always, if there are any questions, because I can't cover this totally and fully, please come talk to me or Pastor Dave. We'd love to talk with you about these doctrines. Um, but first, God is immutable in his essence. So we are all familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, right? We confess this doctrine regularly as we confess the Nicene Creed, as we did this evening. There is one God in three persons, and you could just as easily and rightly say one essence, three persons. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they do not claim partial divine essence joined together to form one God. Rather, each person of the Trinity is not lacking in any respect to the divine essence. The essence of the Father is the essence of the Son is the essence of the Spirit. And what is this essence? It is Spirit. Our confession gives us a clear, articulate summary of God's essence. So when asked who or what God is, we can echo what the confession states in chapter 2, paragraph 1. God is a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable. God's essence is not composed of matter, contrary to what most of Hollywood promulgates. Right? God is not an old bearded man floating around in the sky. Uh, not only is that a second commandment violation, but it's an offensive, degrading depiction with regard to who our God really is, and so it is with any image that would liken him to his creation. God is not made up of bodily form as we are. God's substance is spirit, invisible, without a corporal body. Our substance, or our human substance, is composed of finite matter. We have physical bodies, and our physical bodies undergo change with the passing of time. And that change is continual and inevitable. And every single one of you are different right now than you were when you first woke up this morning. Maybe you've gained some weight, maybe you've lost some weight, you've certainly lost some, some cells off of your body and some hair has fallen from your head, unless you're Pastor Dave in which you have no hair on your head. But he does have hair on his arms. He's like a modern day Esau, you know, I think he's, he might have lost a lot. But uh, our bodies are in decline. In our youth, we grow to be bigger and stronger than we once were, but we are in a state of decay. As we grow older, our bodies lose the strength and zeal that was so very evident in our youth. Our eyesight dims. Our ears become less sensitive. Our minds and its memory becomes impaired. And we lose the ability to do things that came most easily to us when we were younger. Our physical bodies, just like the rest of creation, are wearing out like a garment, just as Psalm 102 says. But that is not so with God. God in his immutable essence does not fall victim to those qualities and features of finite created beings. Our God does not have arms that can grow weary or eyes that can lose their sight or a physical mind that with time loses its cognitive ability for getting things. Speaking of God, the psalmist in 102 says, But you are the same and your years have no end. God and his divine essence cannot become weak, frail, immobile, and die. 
as his creatures do. He remains forever on his throne as king. In Psalm 102, we see the great distinction between the creator and his creatures. And all of creation, though well-founded and firmly fixed by God, over time diminish in their quality. We see this all the time. The grass and the flowers wither and fade. The trees die. Stars in the sky, they burn out. Every single thing that makes that, that man makes is composed of finite immutable matter. So the structures we build, the houses, the cars we have, they all pass away, they fail. But the Lord remains forever the same, unchanged. And this spirit, this essence, is eternal and subsistent in and of himself. We call this, again, bear with me, divine aseity. And that means that God is eternally self-existent. He's not deriving anything from his creatures. He stands in need of nothing, and nor does he gain anything from his creatures. He is of himself the very existence by which he exists. He has from eternity to eternity always been what he is, and God cannot be anything other than what he has eternally been. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, God telling Moses to tell them this, that I am has sent me to you. God does not call himself, I will be what I am becoming. He calls himself, I am. And I mention God's aseity because immutability is a natural implication of an eternal and self-sufficient God. Uh, Stephen Sharnock has this to say. He who hath not being from another cannot but be always what he is. God is the first being, an independent being. He was not produced of himself or of any other, but by nature always hath been, and therefore cannot by himself or by any other be changed from what he is in his own nature." Many theologians call God being. That's it, being. And so follow, follow me here as we reason through this. The reason God is called being is that, is that God, as the eternal one, as we've mentioned, is uncaused. No higher power has brought God into existence. God did not bring himself into existence. And the one who did not begin to exist cannot be in a process of becoming anything other than what he has eternally been. So we are created, and as creatures who began to exist, have a starting point, have been put into motion, we are in a constant state of change or becoming. We have potential to become something other than what we are because we have a starting point that we've been put into motion. Change is a feature of creatures who began to exist and live within space and time. Okay, so God is not confined to space or time. He is omnipresent, right? Not confined to a space. And he's eternal, not confined to time. Therefore, our God, as the uncaused eternal spirit, is not subject to the changes that occur within space 
or time. The God who is, is what he is eternally. He can be no other. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is no potentiality or potential in God to become something other than what he eternally has been. God is being, he's pure being, but we are becoming. Right? The difference between being and becoming is the difference between the creator and his creation. And this eternal self-existent spirit Herman, uh, is perfect. Herman Bovink has this to say, For God to be immutable is for God to be God. He continues on, All that changes ceases to be what it was, but true being belongs to him who does not change. For every change would diminish his being. So what is in view here is, is that God is, is perfect. Right? He is the absolute, complete being, and that which is perfect has no need of any change. So if there be any change in God, whether for the better or the worse, that God could not be perfect. God cannot become better because he is already perfect and cannot become and cannot become any less than what he is. Because he is already perfect, he cannot become any more perfect than he already is. And a perfect being cannot change for the worse, being less than perfect. So some people may argue, right, well, couldn't God change in a way that his perfection may be unaltered, right? Couldn't God change in some facet or in some regard while also retaining his perfection and his qualities, and to that person, I would ask, what change would be necessary for a God who is already perfect? If God were to change, that would presuppose that there was something imperfect in God. It would imply that there is a defect in him that must be altered so that he may come to a greater existence. A perfect being has no reason to change in order to be other than what he is. God is immutable. In his essence. And so I'm sure some of you might have some questions, many questions at this point. Uh, and there are some challenges set before us uh, when we read passages like Malachi 3 6, which says, I, the Lord, do not change. But then we have passages like John 1 14, and the Word became flesh. Christ became flesh. I have in view here the incarnation. So a question could be something like this. If God's essence is immutable, then how do we explain the incarnation? Isn't the fact that God became a man some sort of change in God's being? Or you may be asking yourself that you're telling me that which, that which did not begin to exist cannot be in a state of becoming, yet as we read in John 1.14, the word became flesh. How do we resolve that tension? And that is a good question that I think we should pay attention to and answer. And in order to answer that question, we must have a firm understanding of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the union between God and man and the person of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, there was no mixing of the divine nature and the human nature. They are not mixed together to form some kind of hybrid being like a deified human or a humanized deity. The two natures were united together in one person without a mixing or the confusion of the two. When the Son of God took on himself and assumed human nature, each nature retained their unique and peculiar 
properties in the one man. So when we say that the Son of God became hungry, tired, suffered, and died, we can say that of the human nature. We can rightly say the human nature became tired, suffered, and, and died. We, we cannot, on the other hand, say of the divine nature, that the divine nature became hungry, tired, suffered, and died. We can only attribute these worldly changes to God predicated upon the fact that Christ, who is the Son of God, did these things. Okay? But we must recognize that it is improper to say the divine essence experienced the sufferings that Christ experienced in his human nature. God the Father did not suffer and die. God's essence did not suffer and die. Uh, God the Son suffered and died, but he only did so in his human nature. Okay? So there was not a single change that took place in the divine essence as he assumed the weakness of human flesh, right? Christ is truly God, and he is truly man. So God, in his essence, the eternal, self-existent, pure and perfect spirit is immutable, and in the incarnation there was no change in the divine essence of God. And so not only is God, firstly, as we mentioned, immutable in his essence, but second, God is also immutable in his attributes, when we talk about the attributes, uh, we are talking about uh, the perfections of God. Attributes like love, justice, holiness, power, wisdom, and truth. And if you remember, I prefaced a sermon with the simplicity of God, meaning that God is not composed of different parts or attributes that form him. Rather, God is infinitely, perfectly, and eternally all the attributes that he possesses. Those attributes are identical to who God is. And because God is simple, and because there are no parts in him, follow me, then there is not a single part that can be isolated or altered or moved or changed. If God could change in any of his attributes, being a simple God, he would no longer be God. So being as God is unchanging... And God is identical to the love by which he loves. It follows that his love is also unchanging. So the reasoning goes like this. God is love. He's identical to the love by which he loves. God is unchanging. Therefore, his love is also unchanging. Right? And that principle follows for all of his attributes. His power is an immutable power. His wisdom is an immutable wisdom. His holiness is an immutable holiness. His truth is an immutable truth. And his faithfulness is an immutable faithfulness. And we must remember that all of God's attributes are perfect, as we mentioned already. They are the perfections of God. And that which is perfect is not subject to change. If they change, they are no longer perfect. Every attribute belonging to God is exactly the same now. It's exactly the same now as it was before the creation of the universe. The power that was put on display when he created the heavens and the earth has not diminished one bit. Colossians 1 tells us that he is currently upholding all of creation by the word of his power. And how do we know that he is upholding all of creation by the word of his power? We're still here. We still exist. He is upholding it. If God were to lose the slightest bit of his power that was put on display in creation, everything would cease to exist. We would no longer be here. We see much of God's wisdom and power and his goodwill towards creation put on display in the book of Job. 
right? Job is, is grumbling and complaining to God. And God answers Job sternly, saying, Who shut the sea in with stone doors and prescribed its limits for it and set bars and doors, saying, Thus far you shall come, and you shall come no farther? Has God removed his sovereign hand, or has his mighty arm grown weary as he restrains those proud waves? No, not in the slightest. God continues to hold all things in place to this day. God continues on asking Job a series of questions. Questions like, well, who put the stars in their place? Well, we still have stars. Who provides food for the lions? As far as I know, there are still lions running around in Africa. He says, have you commanded the morning since your days and caused the dawn to know its place? We have morning. We have evening. We have days, we have night, we can count on it because our God's power is still in place and has not diminished, has not weakened. That good wisdom and goodness and power continues to be on display to this very day without fading. It will continue on throughout eternity. He has not diminished, he has not decreased, he has not grown tired. Our God does not change. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Listen to that. The Lord Yahweh, the great I Am, who is the eternal, most pure, self-existent, immutable spirit, is good. He is good, and he cannot be anything other than good. His steadfast love is immutable, and his love for his people can be nothing other than steadfast. He is immutably faithful to his bride. He can be nothing other than faithful to his bride. Why? Because our God has said so. He cannot lie. God's truth is immutable. And so, some may ask, is there anything that God can't do? Right? Is there anything that God can't do? Yes, there is something God can't do. He cannot lie. He cannot be anything other than true. This is what we see in Hebrews 6, 17 through 19. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. In this passage, we are told that there are two unchangeable things, and those two unchangeable things are God's promise and his oath. And it's on the basis of God's immutable nature, which is truth, that God will be faithful to his people. God's immutability is the basis on which we are told that we can trust him. All right, that's the argument that's being put forth by the author of Hebrews. So you could reason like this. Uh, if God were to be a little bit mutable, then he would also be a little bit unfaithful. right? But he's not mutable. He's immutable. And because of his immutability, he is faithful. But God does not need to promise or to give us an oath. He does not need to do those things for us, but he graciously does so in order that we might have hope and an anchor of the soul. And so when we give an oath, we swear by something greater than ourselves, right? This is why in court, uh, when people, uh, people are in court, they, they make an oath and they swear by God. They put their hand on the Bible 
um, who, and, and God is of a higher authority than we are. Uh, and when they do this, they say, well, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And so you make an oath based on an authority higher than yourself, who is God that you will answer to. And this makes sense for us because God is our higher authority, right? God is the authority over all creation. But who possesses higher authority than God when he makes his oath? Who does God swear by? There is no one higher than God, and so he swears by his own name. He, he swears by himself. When, when God made a covenant with Abraham, which is what's being referred to in Hebrews 6, uh, Abraham gathered these animals, right, and he cut them in half and laid them aside. And God uh, passed between the two animals, cut in, or the animals cut in two. And what God was signifying is in his passing between the animals torn in half, is that if I break my word to you, then may my fate be as these slaughtered animals that I am passing between. Alistair Begg has this, I believe it was him who said this, he said that what God is saying is that he would rather cease to exist than to be unfaithful to his people. God is saying, I would rather cease to exist than to break my covenant with you. And the author of Hebrews points us to a new covenant, a greater covenant, which has been sealed by the blood of Christ. And the immutable, true, and faithful God who made his covenant with Abraham is the same immutably true and faithful God that has made his new covenant with us. God is serious about his promises and his oaths, and he swears by his own name to give us comfort and assurance. Again, God didn't have to do that, right? But to anchor the hope in our souls, he condescends and does these things for our good. Those whom he loves in Christ, he loves immutably. He can do no other. Those who he has predestined, he will not forsake. He cannot forsake. He cannot be unfaithful. And third, God is immutable in his purposes, which we hinted at a little bit as we walk through Hebrews 6, 18, the un, speaking of the unchangeable character of his purpose, we have Psalm 33, 10 through 11. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. When we speak of God's purposes, we are speaking of his will and his decree, and that is to say that God does not change his mind, right? God does not will something today only to find out as time passes by that what he had willed and decreed from eternity past uh, was a mistake, right? God doesn't need plan B, C, or D. God is not in some sort of cosmic struggle with his unruly creation being brought to the point of exhaustion, as if he's trying just oh so hard to keep things in order and keep his plan intact. Right, that's not what God is doing. God has ordained all things that should come to pass. Now we, on the other hand, we make all kinds of plans. We are not always able to see them through. An example of this is the garage between me and or my and Keeley's house is in pretty terrible condition. It has some termite damage, roof's overloaded, uh, it's got three layers of shingles, so it's got a nice, a nice lean on it. It's not looking too good. Uh, unfortunately, our garage is not immutable. It's changing, right? It's passing away 
like a garment and it's wearing out like everything else. And so after getting married and purchasing uh, our house, we had planned this summer to, to tear that one down and build a new one. And that hasn't worked out and it hasn't happened for multiple reasons. Uh, first, I lacked the foresight to anticipate that the prices of building supplies would absolutely skyrocket this year. I think we're all feeling the effects of that. We had not the foresight to see that that would happen. Uh, had I known that that would have happened, I probably would have started earlier in purchasing the things needed. And second, I have to gather the materials needed because I don't already have the materials needed for the garage. Right? I'm not like the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There are things that I need that I do not have. God does not lack anything. He's not in need. And not only that, uh, but I also need a helping hand. I can't do that job on my own. Uh, it's a bit overwhelming. So I lack the foresight, I lacked the means, and I lack the power to execute all that I had planned. That will probably not happen this year. Sorry, Keely. Maybe. We'll see. I don't know. I'd like for it to, but... <clears throat> and so now we have reason that if we had the power, if we had the resources and the foresight to follow through with our plans, now we just assume that we would, right? We just assume, well, if I had everything necessary, I would certainly hold true to my promises, well, there is one major hurdle that we must overcome, and that is our sinful and passable human nature. What I mean is this. Let's say that we did have everything together and everything that we needed um, to accomplish the plans that we had set forth. And maybe you made a promise to a friend, but they have then offended you. They have done you wrong, or maybe you had a long day of work. And, of course, you having foresight could see, well, that would happen. I knew my friend would upset me, or I knew I'd have a long day at work. But now you've been touched by something outside of yourself, and your emotions have been stirred. So now you don't even want to do the thing that you said you would do before. Even though you totally could, you just won't because you've been touched by your emotions or you've been tempted to do something other than what you have said. We call this being passable. But our God is not passable. He is in. Passable. Okay, probably a new word for some of you guys, so bear with me. I'm going to explain this to you. You may recognize this term from our confession, right, which we read earlier, that our God is a most pure spirit. We covered that. Invisible, without body, right, no, no arms, legs, uh, no parts, so he's simple. We covered that as well. Or passions. God is without passions. And so when we think of passions, we tend to think of of human emotions. So we could say that someone you know has a passionate love or a passionate uh, anger or rage, or they might be passionate for justice. We think of passion as being the emotion, but when we say that God is without passions, we don't mean that God doesn't love righteousness. We don't mean that God doesn't hate sin, right? God who is holy must hate sin and he must love righteousness. It is God's very nature to hate sin and love righteousness. What we mean is that God cannot be acted upon or touched by something or someone which would then move him or touch his affections to be something other than what he is and has eternally been. Okay, so remember from speaking of the essence of God, God is being, pure actual being, we are becoming. And we are becoming not only in our physical human essence, but we are also becoming in our affections. We are being moved in our affections. But God cannot become anything in his affections that he is not already. 
And so to bring some clarity to this word passion that we're using, um, the root word for passion in Latin is pati. Okay, and this is where we get words like patient. So if you go to the doctor, you are the patient, and you are the one as the patient who is being acted upon by the doctor. Okay, so the doctor is the one who acts upon you, and the patient is being acted upon and touched by something outside of itself. And so when our confession says passion, it's not referring to, to mere emotion itself. Rather, passion refers to the mode by which someone comes to love or the mode by which someone comes to hate. We are passionate. We are passable. We can come to these things. God is eternal and fixed in his emotions. He cannot be touched by anything to become something other than what he already has been in his emotions. And this is kind of looked over today, I think, at large, but this is a very important doctrine uh, because if you have a God with passions, then you necessarily lose God's immutability because he changes. You lose his eternality because God will begin to be something other that he previously was not. You lose his aseity and pretty much every other doctrine that we have touched upon this evening, if you affirm that God is passable, you lose necessarily all these things. You, they, they, it's not consistent. You can't keep it. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking now, because there are probably more questions in your head, because you'd say, I read scripture, it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem like God's uh, impassable. Doesn't God uh, ascribe to himself uh, affections that are changing I think we see this, an example would be Genesis 6, 5 through 7. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Uh, the, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of face of the land, man and the animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Those seem like human emotions. Doesn't sound like these, oh, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I did not know this would happen. I'm sorry I did this. I'm grieved. The, the creation has hurt me by their sin. I did not know, and this hurts me. That's what you would read that, and, and that's what you would come to their standing of. Uh, we also have Exodus 32, 9. And the Lord said to Moses, right, this is after they are creating the golden, uh, the idol, the golden calf. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And then Moses goes on to plead, God, change your mind. Don't consume them. Change your mind. But if remember Numbers 23, 19, well, who wrote Numbers? It was Moses. And what does he say here? God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. So what's going on with this language? Why, why does Moses here um, early in, in Exodus say, God, change your mind. And then Numbers 23 say, God doesn't change his mind. He's not a man that he should lie. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? We have more, many more examples in Scripture. 1 Samuel 15, the Lord says he regrets making Saul king. But again, in the exact same chapter, it says, 
and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. So in the same chapter, it says the Lord regrets making Saul king. And then later on, it says the Lord doesn't regret. There is, a, there is an apparent conflict in scriptures that can be very confusing. And so how do we handle these things that would point us to a, a passable God? Like, what will we do with these passages? Well, first, we don't want to look at who has more verses. That's not how we handle this. We don't say, well, there's more verses on this side, so that's true. It doesn't fix the problem. If you say that God is immutable, well, now you have to deal with passages that say, well, it seems to be God's mutable. But if you think God is mutable, you still have passages that say, well, God doesn't change. It doesn't fix anything. You have to do something with those passages. We have to be careful in our interpretation of these verses that seem to contradict one another. So what do we do with these contradictions or supposed contradictions? Well, historically, the church has always recognized these passages as being written in a way that accommodates our human weakness. Right? It's accommodating language. So we can come to understand the infinite God with our finite minds, right? God's suffering, his changing of his mind, his regret is applied to God in certain texts so we can understand God's revelation of himself to his people. So these descriptions of God are not proper to God. And there are, there are many more passages that we could read uh, that we could take issue with, that we could freely take issue with, um, but we don't have a problem with them because we already understand them rightly, right? There are many passages that use creaturely imagery to describe God, but we don't have questions about it because we understand what's being said. There's language that ascribes to, to God a body. Yet what have we already affirmed this evening? God doesn't have body, he's spirit. We are told that God has a mighty right hand. He has eyes, he has ears, a nose, and yet we understand already in reading these things about God that those things don't properly belong to God, that he is spirit. And, and these, big word, may not have heard of it before, bear with me. These are called anthropomorphisms. To break that word down, anthropos means man, morphe means form. You could think of the word morph. So anthropomorphism means just simply the form of man. That's what that word means. Yet we know the essence of God, though we have anthropomorphisms. We know the essence of God does not have human form or body parts, but it is this imagery that helps us to understand what God is like, right? It's accommodating language. So if when scriptures say that God has a mighty right hand, we understand what that means. God doesn't literally have a mighty right hand, but we get might, power associated with might, right? We get that. Whenever we have passages where it says burnt sacrifices smell sweet, right, to his nostrils, God's not saying Mmm, that meat smells so good to my nostrils. My little, that's not what God's saying. God's saying he's pleased by the sacrifices that are genuinely offered to men. And we can get that, right? We are pleased when we go to people's houses or have cookouts, bonfires, whatever, the smell. That's a pleasing aroma. We like that. That's a way that we're able to understand what God means when he speaks of these things. And so without this accommodating language, there's no way for us to begin to know the incomprehensible God. So all we know is what's plain to us and what's common to us. Um, was it Luther or Calvin? He called this baby talk, I believe. It's just, it's just baby talk. Like he's talking to us like we're, we're children because we can't really grasp the incomprehensible God in our minds. And so there are also instances of, of zoomorphism. So Z-O-O, zoo, animals. So from that you can describe uh, 
animal-like characteristics or qualities to God. And the psalm we read this evening, it said that God had wings. God does not have wings. We recognize that. Um, but here, when we're speaking of uh, human emotions, another big word, don't lose me here, very close to anthropomorphism, is anthropopathism. And this is where human emotions are ascribed to something or someone not human. So what purpose do these emotions have? Well, James Renahan says this, While scripture in some places does seem to attribute human emotion to God, we must look past the human language to the perfections which are signified by that emotion. So which perfections of God are signified by this emotional human language? Right? I, I think primarily we see uh, God's immutable holiness and his true and eternal hatred of sin. So, so think of it this way, right? So what a rebuke would it be from God and a glimpse at his hatred of sin when we read that God hates sin so much that he says he regrets and is sorry that he ever made creation. Can you imagine the sting that would bring to hear that? What a glimpse of, his whole, of this holy God who is a consuming fire of holiness when he says that his anger burns against his people for their idolatry when they made the golden calf. What a rebuke towards Saul when God says, I regret ever making Saul king. Do we not get a glimpse of his holiness when he says these things? Do we really think that the omniscient, wise, omnipotent king, whose counsel stands forever and who raises up worldly kings and tears them down, was unaware of Saul's rebellious attitude that the world would fall into sin? No. Do we think God was unaware that the people of Israel would fashion idols? No, he foretold it. He knew they would. It wasn't a surprise. God doesn't need another plan. God did not come up, have to come up with a plan B as if all that he had ordained and decreed was a mistake. So it is by these anthropopathisms or human emotions attributed to God in Scripture that we are able to see the perfections of God. We're able to see his holiness, his mercy, his faithfulness. And this is important for us because whether we admit it or not, over time we can begin to think that God makes exception for our sin. As if our sin is more acceptable to God than the sins of the world before the flood. Or the sin of the people of Israel who worship false idols. Or the sins of Saul. We can begin to think that our sins are not quite as dark and vile, but they are. And our God hates our sin just as much as those who have sinned before us. God hates sin perfectly, immutably. Now the way he the way he shows himself and reveals himself to his creation in different ways varies. Though there is no change in God himself. The way he reveals his hatred of sin can come in different times throughout history. But there is no change in God in his regards for his hatred of sin. And how do we know that God hates sin? Well, first he's told us. But we need look no further than the crucifixion of Christ where God's wrath is put on display, directed against all the sins committed by his people. Our God, who is holy and hates sin perfectly and infinitely, does not look past our sin, nor does he ignore them. Rather, our sin stands before his holy face in Christ on the cross, and they have been nailed to that tree, and we bear them no more. And we have an immutable love and grace and mercy extended to us in Christ. Though he does not make exception, 
for our sin. He has truly provided for us the way of salvation and offering up Christ on the cross where God's divine wrath and justice crushed his son on the cross in our place so that we might not be consumed by this consuming fire of holiness. I think there are times that we do indeed think too humanly of God. We treat God as if his holiness is mutable when we assume he doesn't care about our sin. And I think we treat God as passable when we live as though we can get out in front of God and win him over in his affections by our obedience apart from the work of Christ. God is immutable. He is impassable. He cannot change. Now, switching gears, I know that we have covered a lot of ground this evening, many different doctrines, and it may have felt kind of scattered, or maybe had time, haven't been able to follow along clearly. Um, I know I've not in any way tackled every single question that may come in your mind as we consider these doctrines about God. And so, again, as I mentioned before, I encourage you to ask questions. If you have any questions about, you know, what does it mean truly that God is impassable? Does it mean that he doesn't love, um, he can't relate to us? Ask me or Pastor Dave these things. We'd love to talk through these things with you. And I would commend to you um, books by Dr. James Dolezal, who I've referenced many times this evening. He was a great help for me in studying for this. Stephen Charnock, Old Puritan, Herman Bovink, they have written great things on this topic, and I encourage you, ask us questions, read, read them. It's good. It's very good stuff. But in closing, I have a few things that I want to mention as to what to do with God's immutability or what it means, what it means for us that God is immutable and impassable. If, if you hear nothing else tonight, hear this, that Christians... For you, Hebrews 6 tells us knowing our God is immutable, is an anchor to our souls. If our God is mutable or passable, we have no hope of salvation. We have no certainty of it. We have no guarantee that Christ's one sacrifice could truly stand to atone for all the sins of his people. We have no guarantee that he would be faithful to his promises to build his church, he will not fail. To sanctify his people, he will not fail in sanctifying his people. Preserving his people, conquering the world and destroying all the devices and the schemes of the wicked. God is immutable in his plans and purposes and he cannot fail in any regard. We need this immutable God. We are always searching, striving for constancy, and as we look in the world, we will not find it. You will not find immutability in God's creatures or creation. But we do find this constancy, this solid rock in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For those who are suffering, it is a good thing to know that we have a God who is impassable, who cannot be touched by men, being brought to a greater existence of love, or from love to hate, that he holds all things perfectly and that he cannot be brought to suffer. What a comfort, or what comfort would it be to look to a God who could be brought to despair and suffer as we do, or fly off the handle, losing his temper, as the Greek gods often did. 
being for us one day and all of a sudden having enough and casting us away and having nothing to do with us anymore because he'd been touched by the creature. Rather, we have a rock who we can rely upon and trust in as we suffer, and we can know that in Christ, he truly and perfectly and immutably loves us. This is how we can sing hymns in times of trouble. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Or on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Only the immutable and impassable God can say, as we've read in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. We read the words in 2 Timothy 2 and 11, and be comforted with this. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And so, unbelievers, if there be any among us this evening, looking ahead in that same portion of Scripture, where there is a beautiful hope for Christians, there is a strong warning for you. He says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. An immutable God to the Christian is a great comfort, but for the wicked, an immutable God is a terror. If you are faithless... If you do not believe upon Christ, our God will be faithful to his word and promise to judge you by your works. Do not think for a second that God will accept any other payment for your sins outside of Christ. He won't. Do not suppose that you can manipulate or get out in front of a holy God whose affections cannot be changed by mere men. He has provided the way of salvation. It is by Christ and Christ alone you will not find salvation by any other name. The object of the Father's love is for the Son, and only by the Son can we also receive the same immutable love and forgiveness of sins. Our God is a consuming fire. But if you are an unbeliever this evening, there is a promise for you, a hopeful promise. And know this to be true, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you turn to Christ today? Church, may we behold our immutable and impassable God, and find comfort in God's truth. Let's pray. Our gracious, merciful, and heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths that are revealed to us by your word, and we ask that you would grant to us comfort and peace in our hearts, knowing that we have a rock that we can cling to, that cannot be moved, cannot be changed, and that as we suffer, we have a God who truly loves us, that, that can comfort us, that we can cling to and run to. Lord, write this truth upon our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. You guys will stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's sing.